Hey, welcome back to the podcast, and this is it. It's episode 100. I'm I'm very excited. I never thought I'd have more than 10 episodes, and here I am, 100 episodes later. And before I introduce my guests, I promised that I was going to give away a $100 gift certificate, and so the winner is Gina Weeks. I will send you a message so that I can get you your gift certificate. Thank you for following and listening and sharing uh, the episodes and the podcast. All right, here we are, and this is Megan and Deidre. I met them at the Wesleyan Holiness Women Clergy Conference, and we talked briefly about that in the episode. They were doing um, a workshop on the Enneagram, uh, which is their niche. We talk about a little, they have more things involved in their ministry than just that. And we do get into that in the episode. They do a good job introducing the benefits of the Enneagram, um, talking about some of its nuances. We don't get into a lot of each number. Uh, I will encourage you to go and listen to their podcast if you want to hear more about each number on the Enneagram and those kind of things. So Megan is an Enneagram 4, and Deidre is an Enneagram 1, and I am an Enneagram 6, and so you'll get to hear the, our interaction of our three different numbers. And there's a couple of books that we mentioned in the episode, and then I'm going to put them in the show notes, specifically um, Becoming Us and Suzanne Stabile's book. Both of those are about the Enneagram. And then I'm also going to add Speaking by the Numbers, which is also by, about the Enneagram, by Sean Palmer. That's a brand new book out and really for pastors, clergy, others who who do public speaking and understanding that at any given time you're you're, you're speaking to nine different types of people uh, who are going to hear your message from a different perspective. And we kind of already know that. We do talk a little bit more about that in the episode. And so I think that'll be a good resource for you. And then we mentioned Dr. Larry Crabb and Fred and Florence Litauer. So I'm going to put that in the show notes. As well. But specifically also, uh, I want you to check out their podcast called Dauntless Grace. Um, their vision is, and their mission, I should say, is connecting women to a meaningful story. There it is. I hope you enjoy it. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy in the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? All right. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast. I am really glad that you are here. And we got to meet at at the Wesleyan Holiness Women Clarity Conference. And I've talked about the conference a little bit with in previous episodes with my guests. So they're familiar with the conference and stuff like that. I really enjoyed your workshop. I've done some work with the Enneagram. And so I had some knowledge going into it, but I thought it was, it was interesting. You kept our interest as we went through the, as we went through the workshop and then uh, I learned new things. So that was a really unique space there to have so many people who are in ministry. Um, of course, we're all lay people to the Enneagram, I guess, you know, not, no one's like a professional Enneagram person in the room, but uh, to, it's almost like, 
you know, when you're teaching a group of people that are just like pulling something really cool out of you and there was just a really good synergy in the room. It was so neat. Cause how can you go through nine types and get into the nuance of the Enneagram in one hour? But we still laid such a great ground work for it that uh, with everyone's, um, what they were bringing to the space, it was, it was a very cool time. Uh, Megan and I both look back at that as like a highlight of last year for sure. It was humbling. You know, I've never worked in pastoral ministry before. And so I am approaching this conference with hundreds of women pastors thinking they're not going to come listen to us. Like if this is just a little workshop on the Enneagram and to watch them kind of lining up outside the door because they couldn't get a seat. And some of that was due to the small room we had, but that was very humbling. It was a very cool experience. Like Deidre said. Yeah. You, you still had a good turnout, even with the size of the room. I mean, you, it was great to see, and it was great to see just women wanting to lean in more to self-awareness and healing and, and those kind of things that come from the Enneagram. I know you both have degree, master degrees, right? In different, I think you have a counseling background. We talk a little bit about what's your education background and, and then where you're serving, ministering, working, et cetera. <laughs> Uh, My degree is in education. Uh, My undergrad and my master's is both in education. And I was a classroom teacher for about 10 years. And I simultaneously volunteered in my church's youth ministry program. So a lot of working with teens, young adults. And then I moved to higher ed. And now I work with an education company that reaches school districts. So I'm pretty grounded in the education field. And this ministry is a little bit of a just our fun side gig that we would love to see turn full time someday. Uh, my educational past is a little more complicated. I started as a dance major in a, a college when I was, you know, 19 and uh, didn't actually finish my bachelor's degree at that time. I kind of treated it like a conservatory and took all the classes I wanted with music and dance <laughs> and acting. It was like, eh, who needs science, you know, math, those things. But I started a family, you know, my husband and I have been married almost 25 years and I did a lot of work in our church uh, in ministry. So I just wasn't super motivated to finish a bachelor's degree in dance. Uh, at the time I was ministering in dance, but it wasn't like a career path. So mostly I was uh, in youth ministry as the pastor of our youth ministry for a lot of years and then uh, in our worship arts program. And uh, eventually I uh, got closer to 40, I guess, and was like, I should finish my degree. I'm, I'm sending kids off to college. I need to show them that you do this. So I went to the college where Megan worked at the time and did an organizational leadership degree. I had a lot of you know, enough credits to transfer in for a pretty good amount of that, as well as just experience in pastoral care. So my bachelor's is in organizational leadership, and I'm pursuing a master's right now in human services counseling. That's kind of where I found my passion as I worked with people and cared for people's hearts. I'm like, there's a lot of soul issues tied up in the way that we work out our salvation, you know, and I feel like we need more tools to help people uh, cope with those well, instead of kind of bypassing them and stuffing them down. There is a lot of soul work as we move through and in discipleship. And there's so much that we we don't deal with. So I came to faith in Christ as an adult. Of course, this is mid-90s, so it dates me. But I was reading a lot of Fred and Florence Littower. And so they really pressed you to dig into you know, your childhood wounds, deal with those things, and allow Christ to come in and start working on those things and heal it. So from early on in my walk with Christ... You know, I had that that interest in and that desire to not just allow Christ to heal those things, but then to allow him to work through other people like counselors. And stuff. Um, so that's always been kind of a bailiwick of mine for people as they come to faith in Christ and making that part of your discipleship. 
you know, even though I come out of a tradition that's a little bit more like come to the altar, you know, we'll pray this prayer over you and you'll be healed. And I do believe that he, he does that. And I, and I've experienced that, but then I've also experienced the ones where Christ is like, yeah, and now I'm going to let you use this person and this tool, and this thing to shape you and, and heal you and um, inform you into my image. So will you talk a little bit about how you discovered the Enneagram? Um, I actually had a friend, a Facebook friend who sent it to me about five or so years ago. She sent me an Enneagram test and she said, Hey, you've been asking a lot of questions. You should take this. And I took the test and it came back that I was an Enneagram nine. And I said, I don't, what does that mean? And she said, well, here, read about it and tell me if you think that fits. And I read about it and I was like, I mean, maybe why not? And I never looked at it again um, for about maybe a year or so later. And actually Deidre and I were out one night having coffee somewhere And I said, hey, I want to look at this Enneagram test thing again, but you should take it for me because maybe I didn't answer it accurately. And so she took the test for me and it came back that I was a two. And when I read about that, I thought, oh, that sounds a lot more like who I was in my early 20s. That sounds right. So kind of did some work reading about that for a little bit. And again, didn't quite fit, didn't seem to matter much. So I put it away. And a few months later, finally, I picked up a book. I read the book and I said, oh, it's because I'm a four. I will finally admit that I'm a four. And when I realized that everything clicked into place and I started texting Deidre, sending her screenshots, sending her pictures of this book. And I, and it was, I don't even remember what month it was, but I feel like it was right at the end of a school year and things were crazy in her life. And I said, you need to know everything about the Enneagram right now, because this is life-changing. And she said, I can't yet. <laughs> Do you remember that season? Oh, yes. Lots of screenshots. <laughs> and like, read these books, like three books right now. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I was, well, I think we were finishing, we were back to school for our degree. And I had all these kids in school that had everything, you know, track and dance and basketball sports and activities and then um, work stuff. So it just felt like I did not have a moment to breathe. If I would have laid down to read at night, I would have fallen asleep because it was just one of those seasons of life. But let me just go back and edit your story real quickly. When we took yeah. that talk the, at that coffee house that night, you were two. Then remember I took it and it said I was a two and we both looked at each other and we're like, oh. we're the most different people. There's no way this is accurate. Uh, so I think that night it was sort of like, well, that can't be very good of a tool. Like that can't be right. So we just sort of put it aside. But when you started really geeking out going, no, I found my type and everything just came into this clarity and it makes sense. I said, okay, I want to learn about this because I do love these things, right? But I need to wrap my head around it. This isn't something you can just read a graphic and understand, you know, like you really do need to dig in and do some work. Um, And she wasn't just reading books. She was listening to all the podcasts and all the people and following everyone and sending me, you know, Instagram screenshots. And I'm like, this is all fascinating. I need just a little bit of time. So I promised her when we left for vacation around Memorial Day that I would spend the drive investing. And of course, I love it. And we've spent several road trips listening to all the teachings and podcasts and everything together since then. But when we (laughs) took the test, we both ended up being a two And we can both see now why that was true, but it wasn't our core number. And so it just didn't fit. So it was kind of like, well, interesting. Okay, move on. And I know you talked about this a little bit in the workshop, but why is it that you would both end up as a two? Because I know you're a one, right? I grew up in a pastor's home. So I think being like the, the idea of being others referenced and serving and and being helpful, those are all uh, behaviors that I I learned were the right thing to do. 
So as a one, I was motivated by this intrinsic fear that I wasn't going to be good enough. And so to be a, a better person, I could be more helpful and more of a servant and everything. So I, it wasn't quite the same. I had a lot of two behaviors, but it wasn't being driven from the same core fear, core longing and wounding message. Um, so it made a lot of sense to me when I learned more about being an Enneagram one, why those behaviors and why I would have had a really strong two wing even growing up. And I think for Megan, she can answer that differently as a four then. Yeah. So fours and twos share a connecting line. So when fours go are in stress, they can easily access and pick up behaviors of a two, especially those unhealthy behaviors of a two. So when I was taking the test, thinking about myself, particularly in my early twenties, which would have been a very stressful season for me, I would have found myself really entrenched in those two, two behaviors. And so that's kind of how I answered the questions on the test and why I saw myself there. So yeah. I'll say we probably wouldn't recommend starting with a test. I mean, you mm-hmm. can, but you really need to dig into it and have someone help you decode that. Um, I had someone the other day tell me she was an eight and a three. And I said, well, tell me what you mean by that. Cause I know that's not a thing, right? She's basically took a test and it's like the top two scores. I said, oh, well, what's that saying is you scored really high in eight and pretty high in three. So you, it's telling you to read more about those, but you're not an eight and a three. You're like, it's like giving you your highest rankings. Right. And I think for me, when I went back and looked at it, I had a one and um, a seven or four line in there or whatever. And that all makes sense because as a one, I share a line with seven and four. Um, so those tests, you, yeah, they're a starting point maybe, but you really need to have someone kind of walk through that with you. And I, and ultimately I think it's about reading and learning more of the nuance. The book I had read Suzanne Steele's book, Sibyl. Then I did the test, you know, online and my highest score was a five, but second, my second was a six, but they said, but if you look at your, your core fear, it flips. And so when I went back then and read those two chapters, specifically looking at that, oh yeah, I'm definitely a six. So, you know, made it a lot more sense, but I definitely rely heavily on that five wing. Yeah. It's just one of the ways you manage uh, your, your fear, you know, and if you think about it, every number has, you know, two possible wings and two numbers that it connects to. So already we're going to find ourselves with really easy access to behaviors of five of the nine numbers. So that's why it's hard to really type if you don't understand how the numbers are connected and what the nuance is. That's a good point. Cause you, yeah, you have the wings and then you have the ones you go move towards. Is it you move one, one when you're moving towards health and the other towards stress? We call it stress and security lines, which is terminology I think that Suzanne Stabile uses quite frequently because we believe that you can choose behaviors. You can choose the healthy side or the unhealthy side of either of those lines. So one of the moves isn't necessarily a better move for you. It's about your choice that you make when you move there. You discovered this whole thing about the Enneagram. And then at some point you guys move towards dauntless grace. What caused this leap over from one to the other? Uh, and then I'm curious if your which came first, your workshops and stuff like that, or your podcast, or how did that all kind of flesh out? Dauntless Grace is actually about seven years old. Um, it came first. It was born um, out of a Facebook group that I had been involved in where I saw women who, when they came together in community and shared their stories vulnerably, that God was meeting them in those wounded places and showing up to heal them. And I said, something needs to happen where we can just go out and create a space where women can share their stories and then be connected to the story that God is writing for them. And so it was started as kind of an online space and an online blog. And about a year into that, uh, Deidre joined me in the ministry and we decided that we wanted to take it outside of the online realm alone. And we wanted to look at conferences and eventually retreats in 
books and things like that. And so that is older than the Enneagram. And it's because the message of Dauntless Grace connecting women to a meaningful story actually came from some tools Deidre had had grown up using and learning. And I can let her speak about that. Yeah, I mentioned that I grew up in a pastor's home. And so when I was pretty young, um, like junior high age, my mom brought a counseling model into the church. It really was just for lay people to work, you know, spiritual principles into kind of an overlay of a counseling model. Uh, It was by Dr. Larry Crabb. So we talked a lot about like the image uh, is that subconscious. It's kind of like the wounding message in Enneagram, you know, it's that subconscious way that we see ourselves and think about ourselves, but we don't really recognize it, right? It's formed really early in our life. And then these self-protective measures. So based on my image, I have a certain belief about that. And again, very subconscious, but then I, my personality grows as I grow up with all of these self-protection, these layers of managing so that I'm not exposed. And so we really, um, we wrote a short book uh, with with the Dauntless Grace message. We're both English people. She was an actual English teacher. I did teach it like it was another one of those conservatory experiments that I had where I was like, I'll just take a bunch of English classes because I enjoy it. We didn't, I didn't know what I was doing when I was 19. <laughs> but we uh, we overlaid that idea of story, like the plot chart of a story. So, you know, the exposition is like where we're starting. God, God gave us a personality. We didn't have Enneagram for this yet, right? But we have a birth order. We have our lived experience in the family or socioeconomic or whatever. And then there's this crisis moment that happens in our life that begins this struggle to, uh, and and so if we go all the way back to Adam and Eve, right, when they felt exposed, they clothed themselves with fig leaves. And so our message was basically, how can we acknowledge what the fig leaves are we're still using to avoid exposure? Because we recognize that shame disconnects us. It disconnected us from the Lord in the very beginning. And even when we're reconnected to him in a salvation experience, right, we still have a lot of shame built into our DNA that has to be unwound. And so we spent a lot of time in those early years trying to help people identify the broken story that they decided would rescue them from the fear of shame and exposure. And so I think that that was good, but it was always a little like an idea up here that was beautiful. And like you said, there was a beautiful altar call and and there was ministry that flowed. It provided some level of transparency and hard conversations, but for people who had not had counseling or done any inner healing work, it still felt a little nebulous to them. I think like a little, just like, okay, I love this, but what do I do next? And so the Enneagram, when, when Megan found that it became such a beautiful tool as a starting point to really clearly map out what that exposition is. Like, what is it that really was the bias that we experience life through? So if I had my set of glasses on as an Enneagram one, and I already had that broken lens as I was born, then everything I experienced lended, you know, to give credence to that bias that it is not okay to make a mistake. See, it happened again. It's still, you know, shame or punishment or whatever, broken relationships. And so it was just a really, really cool tool to help people get more quickly to those core wounding messages and maybe that image of how they saw themselves, you know, so that we could start kind of peeling back those layers, those fig leaves. And we really found that that happened best in a little, we did it in conference settings, but it really happens best in a little bit more of an intimate, like small group setting. So we found smaller retreats where we have some concentrated time away from kids and work and, you know, life um, has been just a really great way to introduce Enneagram with this message and how God wants to intersect our story and bring healing to some of those shameful places that we so fear being exposed. That was a long answer to your question. 
I like long answers. I'm familiar with Larry, Larry Crabb. That was some of the first stuff that I read early on as a new believer. And it was so phenomenal. It, and I really appreciated his ministry. So it's interesting that your mom brought that into the church. I think that's fabulous that she would introduce that because you're evangelical type background, yeah, right? really non-denominational definitely from more of an evangelical roots. They were first born again in a Baptist church where we were a little more charismatic in our expression of the gifts and things. But for sure, during that time, word of faith was a big thing in our circle of denomination, non-denominational people. And so to recognize that there were some things that you couldn't just memorize the scripture to fix was kind of mind blowing at the time. I mean, so Larry Crabb's material was like, Hey, you can speak something out of your mouth, but is that true all the way into the, you know, the core? And so it definitely ruffled some feathers. There were some people who didn't like that there was any type of psychology happening within the church walls. They felt like that was not spiritual enough, Uh, but it always all comes back to how Jesus touches and heals and how he is the one who we can ultimately trust even more than our own understanding. And so I give her a lot of credit, you know, to do that in the really early nineties, maybe even late eighties at that time when, when she introduced that. And it it was a good tool for a long time, but it it was still, it's kind of like everything, like you have to walk that out with like a counselor or really get into live it out in community where it's safe. Um, So just, just to preach the principles of it is only a starting point. And I think that's probably true for any tool. The comment you made of you have to live it out in community is so important. And I find that, that especially the last, you know, 10, 15 years, it feels like that the church has lost that sense of if you're really going to experience personal growth, spiritual transformation, that it really has to be done in with some kind of a trusted group or community where you can grow with, because it's, it's those moments. And you, you mentioned that the, the book that you wrote and I, and I was, I read that. And one of the things about your, the two of you, your friendship that impressed me was that the two of you, like, as you bump up against each other, you, you, you allow Christ to use that to form you and to shape you, which is one of the things that I find seems to be missing the church. Like when we bump up against one another and we have, we start to have conflict rather than looking at it as, oh, hey, let's allow Christ to use this to shape us and to form us. We just decide, oh, you know, we're going to cancel, you know, cancel culture. Like just, just, okay, you can't be my friend anymore because we disagree or we've bumped up against one another rather than being like, hey, this is an opportunity, right? I'm going to let Megan speak to that because I feel like I've talked a lot and I have lots of words about this too. I want you to say your words. I, I do think that what we have is probably a little bit unique, but we walked into it eyes wide open. We weren't friends when we first met each other. We worked together um, and she was a little bit older and had to experience a lot more inner healing. Although I had also been raised in a Christian home and was working actively working in youth ministry at the time. Uh, I just knew there was some stuff like within my soul that felt broken still and then didn't quite feel healed. And I saw her and thought, I want what she has. And so our relationship started where she actually like unofficially was counseling or mentoring me a little bit, like uh, during my planning periods in a, in the teacher's lounge, because we both worked at a Christian school at the time. And I, I was very upfront about, you know, I want someone to fix me. And right now I think I want you to do that. And she said, well, I don't want to be that place in your life because that's a big fear of mine as well. But if we can trust that God will kind of 
bring us through whatever relationship he has for us right now, whether that's mentor mentee, um, then we can, we can believe that he's enough to fill those soul wounds that we both have. And that's where it started and just slowly evolved from there. I'll let you speak to that, Deidre. Well, yeah, I think so. We kind of, um, Megan will sometimes jokingly say, we started it with a contract. It was like, here's my brokenness. And I was like, here's my brokenness. And we're like, well, we are each other's worst nightmare. You know, like, yeah. that's not going to work. But what we decided was, then that means this is an opportunity for God to show up because what often our conflict with other people is, I would say like 99% of the time. I mean, obviously there's actual boundary violations that happen and there is sin, right? But a lot of the miscommunication that brings hurt feelings is often just the way that these, if I called them earlier, our fig leaves or those self-protective layers that are managing our own fear of being exposed for whatever it is that we are afraid to show the world. And again, people don't even know they're doing this most of the time. So it's not even um, manipulating others consciously, but we're, we're really, I'm working so hard to not be exposed and you're working so hard, right. To fill a soul wound or longing and the way that those longings and desires kind of bump up against each other. Um, that's, that's always what happens, right. Or we're just speaking a different language to one another. Cause I'm speaking as an integrant one, you're speaking as a four and it's like, we're just missing each other. I mean, we know that even with marriage counseling, like first thing we got to do is talk about hearing one another, right? Because you're only hearing through the lens that you said it. You're not hearing it through the lens that they said it from. So I think that just having a lot of really just setting up the parameters to say, we're going to be very intentional to not withdraw and hide when we feel like a layer has been disrupted. So I'm going to say to you, okay, that made me angry. And I'm not going to say it because you did something to me. I'm going to say, I think what's happening is that I had a goal of achieving this for my own self-protection and you're not allowing that goal, you know, to work because you have a longing that is expressed this way. And so, so it just became this very like speaking from I and not blaming, but also then owning like, so what part of me needs to step back so that the spirit of the Lord can really pour through me to love you the way that we're called to love one another. I don't think we know how to do that as Christians. We can say that, but the most important commandment, and he kept coming back to it was love others, right? But we don't even know how to truly love ourselves or allow the Lord to love us in the way that we need because we live so layered up and so guarded. And so the more we can intentionally drop those places, the more we can allow, we can just be vessels where he can just pour his love out of us to others. And so the same grace that we don't deserve that's given to us, we can give to others because no one really deserves it, you know, but I think we expect others to like, well, they didn't treat me right. So they don't deserve my time or they don't deserve, you know, and in ministry, we can get a lot of burnout because of that, because we feel like we give and give and give. But I know for me, I was giving because I thought it was the right thing to do. And then I was really resentful that it wasn't returned, you know, and wasn't met with appreciation and honor and all of these things that I thought maybe should have been there. Again, I didn't do that knowingly, but we do. And so, yeah, it's always coming back to what God wants to do to transform us into these agents of restoration and redemption in, in our lives, but in other, in the world and other people's lives. And it's personal. We can't escape how much that hurts, that process hurts, but it's good work. You made the comment of, we don't allow, we don't allow God to love us the way we need, which I think is so true. Part of that is we don't even know how we receive love best. Like, uh, you know what I mean? Like what would experiencing God's love feel like or look like in our life like we haven't even identified that which I think is kind of related to right the childhood core message or what's the terminology can you talk a little bit about like 
what that is and what that means and how that plays a role in, in, I guess, identifying your type. And then, and then let's see if we can connect that to experiencing God's love. Every type, right. There's something that we, we fear. So like as an Enneagram one, I fear that I'm not good enough. And I feel like that's really generic language. Um, But as I internalize that message for me and what I've lived through, I already felt like something was inherently just kind of flawed about me. But then as a really young girl, I experienced some friendships that brought uh, more shame to that wounding message because there was some sexual abuse that happened. And so that informed me that like, see how gross you are. You're, you're disgusting. No, why would anyone love you? And if they saw that about you, they would dispose of you because that's disgusting. You're gross. And so that was the message I'm telling myself in my little five-year-old, six-year-old, eight-year-old brain, right? I don't know. I have no tools to like figure this out. And of course, shame always keeps us quiet. So we don't, talk about the things that bring us shame. We don't share that to get, I could have gotten an adult's perspective, but I didn't know how to speak it, you know, as a little kid. So I was just as this five-year-old trying to figure this out on my own. And I, and I think we all have some version of that story because we only have the coping mechanisms that we have at those young ages, you know, for whatever disappointment or loss or shame that we uh, endure. And so for me to not make a mistake, which is the like fear, it's not okay to make a mistake of a one my fear there wasn't just like, oh, because you won't get an A plus. It was like, if you don't show up perfectly everywhere, then they'll see everything that's wrong with you. And if they see everything, they're going to see how gross you are and then you'll be discarded. So there's no way someone could love someone who is so gross. So for me to hear like an Enneagram one message of it's not okay to make a mistake. I'm like, well, I mean, I know that it is okay to make a mistake, but there's a part of me that panics at the thought of not showing up perfectly. Because if you look any further to inspect me, you're going to see it all. So that makes a lot of sense why that's driving all of this perfectionism or behaviors of being others focused. Cause I don't want you to look at me. Right. It's different for every type though. It is. And the wounding message that's different and it's reinforced through our lived experiences. Um, like in her story on the flip side, there's that healing message that we all maybe Maybe we heard it, maybe we didn't, but we never internalized it as belonging to us. So like in her example, for an Enneagram one to be like, no, you're good. Even if you're exposed, you are good. Even if everyone sees what's wrong with you, you're still good. You know, for every type, that's a different healing message, but it's something that we need to be able to receive from the father as really touching those wounding messages and us and, and flipping them and reversing them in order to experience that true healing. It's also so complicated because I actually did have parents who said those things to me, like, you're such a good girl. You're the easiest one to raise You're, you know, or, you know, kudos on the A pluses or whatever, or you're so kind to your brothers or just those things, right? I was hearing that message or even my dad would, you're so beautiful. And all I could think was knew the truth. So I couldn't actually receive the love that was being given because I thought if you really knew how gross I was, you wouldn't feel that way you'd reject me. And so that's why I'm saying even the love of God, it always comes kind of wherever the, the, prote- the protection of our most wounded exiled part is, we kind of keep our, our distance from him too. And, and I was in my mid twenties before I realized that he wanted to draw near to me. He didn't want me just to serve him. He didn't want me just to do the performative work of the ministry for him. He actually wanted to encounter me in an intimate way. And that terrified me. But it was Jesus drawing near to me and seeing that part that I could finally admit and expose that brought the true message of that healing message where I was like, oh, now that you see it and you didn't look away and you still loved me, 
then I can really start to believe that healing message. So I don't think it's just enough to even say the words of it when we know someone is that number. Like there's some things that have to kind of, you got to sort through to be able to really hear it. Some of the things that we do can look similar, but it is, it's the core wound or whatever, a motivating that is, that is different. So you mentioned, okay, I got to get a pluses, right. To show that I'm good. And like, and so like I was, I have to get good grades in order to be safe. Would you just run through real quick? Maybe can you like list off the, the nine? It is not a big task. I just want to make sure that I'm saying I'm right because I know them off the top of my head, but not in maybe the language that they're listed other places. So, so for an Enneagram one, it's not okay to make a mistake. For an Enneagram two, it's not okay to have needs of your own. For a three, it's not okay to have your own feelings and identity. For a four, it's not okay to be too functional or too happy. Some of these need a lot of explanation. Um, For for a five, it's not okay to be comfortable in the world. For a six, it's not okay to depend on yourself. For a seven, it's not okay to depend on others for anything. Eights, it's not okay to be vulnerable. And nines, it's not okay to assert yourself. So those might sound, if you're just reading those and you don't know anything about the Enneagram, you might go, I can relate to nine of those, or I relate to none of those, right? And so it's really about drilling into what does that mean for each type? Like when Deidre says, well, I know it's, it's fine to make a mistake. Like I cognitively know that, but if she really went to examine the nuance of that in her life and go, oh, I see where that's actually been a really terrifying thing for me, you know, or that like for me, it's not okay to be too functional or too happy. What does that even mean? Like in my brain, I'm going, those are good things, right? But I can see how that plays out for me to go, oh, if I'm too functional, then people are going to assume that I have everything that I need, but I really believe that I'm missing something that I'm inherently deficient. And if they think I'm too functional, too happy, then no one's going to come along and fill that place that's missing in me. So it really is about, you have to understand what they're saying to in, in order to know which one is yours. Because I would say the same thing about six. I'd be like, what do you mean? I I feel like I do depend on myself, but then when I dig into it, the inner committee, a committee that I have to run through in my mind, is this person going to be okay with this? Is this person going to, you know, like before I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to do, okay, I can do this. But instead of just saying, can I just trust me and Jesus to do this? You know, when did the podcast part come up into play? It was kind of a uh, COVID thing. We were all trapped at home. Our big events had been canceled. You know, um, we actually started it a little less as a podcast and more of like a video series because everyone was on Zoom. And so we were having some conversations summer of 2020 with a few of people in ministry that were, we wanted to elevate their voice to speak about some of the racism and things that were happening in the world that summer. And we felt like we did have somewhat of an audience that we could bring their voice to our audience to hear why they needed to be concerned about the fact that these are still issues that we need to fight for justice in. So, but I think it was that fall we were like, okay, we, you need to get on here. We need to talk about Enneagram. We have more conversations to be had. Uh, So we called it, well, at first it was the Dauntless Grace Exchange because we're exchanging ideas, you know, with people of influence in, in one realm or another, but it did really take on more of an Enneagram focus once we made it a podcast. So it was fall, late fall of 2020, I believe. Yeah. I think November of 2020, which was when we were supposed to have our first national retreat that had the pandemic had canceled. So it's interesting that that's when the podcast started. You know, people had been saying to us, watching us, not even in ministry settings necessarily go, you guys should have your own TV show. You should have your own podcast or whatever. And we were like, 
we are not entertainers. Like we are, no, it's something about our rapport. Like you either like really think it's fun or you don't like it at all. And the people who thought it was fun were like, you should, you just need to put this out there. And we were like, we are, we were not made for TV, you guys. Like that is not a thing. But the podcast, I can get behind that. I can get behind sitting behind a microphone and no cameras and put that voice out there in the world, which was, it was a struggle at first. I don't love having my voice out there. I don't love trying to think of things in the moment to say I'm a, I'm a writer. So I like to process with my, my words um, on paper and not out loud, but it has been one of the most fun things that we've done as a ministry. We've really grown our audience and had some amazing people come on. So it's, it's been exciting. It's also been great to have a record of some of our conversations because we have like this relationship, like she said, it started as kind of a counseling, mentoring friendship. And so we have these deep conversations. We didn't start because we both, you know, were at a soccer field with our kids or something (laughs) like a shared interest, although we do have a lot of shared interests, but we have these deep talks, like, and so to just have them recorded, I'm like, if nothing else, I, there's some of them I've just made my kids listen to, because I'm like, I just want you to know, like, what I'm processing, I'm still not perfect, I'm still in process, and I want you to hear, you know, some of these things that uh, the Lord is showing us, Uh, so just to even go back over the last year and a half, and go, oh, look what he was doing then, that's so fun, like, you kind of, it's like journaling, you forget sometimes what God has done, and so it's like a recorded journal for me of, of some of the things that he's done in our heart, and our lives, I totally think you guys should have a YouTube channel. I think it'd be great. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> uh, how can clergy use this as a tool for both self-awareness and growth? Because probably my listeners, most of them have heard of it. They're probably either totally into it or they're like a little bit ambivalent. But then of course, then there's people out there who are like, oh, this is a tool from Satan or whatever, you know, it's uh, nothing better than the horoscope. So talk a little bit about the the aspect of self-awareness and personal growth and using this, which some of it you've already kind of hinted at through some of the other questions, but maybe specifically for clergy who are like mess around a little bit with it, but how can I go deeper? Well, first of all, I think that just doing deeper work in your heart, it's hard sometimes to listen to sermons now without being like, that's so not nuanced for everyone in the room. (laughs) You know, like, we, we focus a lot in the Christian world, and I'm not saying every pastor does, but just kind of generically, we focus a lot on behaviors and recognizing sin as like whatever the output of all of this stuff in our heart is. And so we end up, I think, bringing a lot of condemnation and shame where it doesn't need to be, or we're just not really connecting to the real heart stirring longing places. And so it kind of just goes over people's heads. And so I think at the very least, it can give you a lot of empathy to understand how nuanced and vast every person in your ministry care is and how they're so different from you and they need to hear things differently than you might say them. So I think in that regard, it's just, it's like a communication tool. Like you need to know that you're communicating with people who don't see the world the way you see it. At least a good percentage of the room doesn't, right? So that right there just helps you be more intentional with your communication and how you bring a word to your congregation, or like you said, in discipleship settings, discipleship should not look like you should look like me. It should be like, how do I unlock your potential and who you are called to be? And so you need to understand that everyone is very different. And that's not just a gift mix, but it's actually the way they see the world and hear things and process things and all of that. And secondly, I think um, that empathy then to understand that 
someone's behavior, while it might be accosting to you because it's very opposite of you or whatever, it's coming from a wounded place. It's coming from a broken place. And so how can we get past the behavior and start speaking to the wounded, honestly, the little kid <laughs> inside of each of us? And how can we speak the, the love of God, the grace of God, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, you know, the love of the Father to those places that are so deep and so core, because eventually it's going to manifest in behavior changes. But if we just focus on that external kinds of stuff, um, it really becomes such a yoke for people to, to bear because they don't know, they don't know how to live up to what they're being asked to be as a Christian. And so they end up kind of feeling like a hypocrite that they can't be who they want to be because they're fighting this internal battle all the time that's either pulling them away or distracting them from or whatever. So yeah, I think it, it's just, it's so important. It's, it's important work. And, and you might be able to get that through other tools, but not everybody can get a degree in counseling. You know, I mean, a lot of us are already coming with our, and so now we're, we're, we're trying to find resources, right. To help us live out this call of ministry on our lives. Uh, so I just think this is an easier resource to access. I think any healthy church is only going to be as healthy as the health of its leadership team and its, you know, staff, its volunteers. And so if there's not a good working relationship and a good way to resolve conflict among those people, or even being aware of your own blind spots, I think the Enneagram just lends a lot of awareness to those places for pastors, for their staff, for those places to say, okay, so when a conflict comes up, rather than this person just always winning, can we talk about why we're seeing it in different places because of the lenses that we're wearing? If, you know, a pastor or someone in leadership has just a big blind spot that they're not even aware of, it's important. Like the Enneagram just brings this in a way that isn't condemning. It's not shaming. It's going, oh, every single Enneagram seven in the world is going to struggle in this area and feel this and have this lens and this blind spot. Okay, well, that burdens me of some of that shame I could feel about it and instead brings me self-compassion, but then gives everyone a common language to understand how we work together. Every single time Deidre and I come into I'm not even going to call it a conflict, but if we come up against each other's, like we said earlier, like layers, we can go, okay, so as an Enneagram one, you're seeing it this way as a four, I'm seeing it this way. Let's use that common language to figure out and how to meet in the middle. It just gives people a common language to see that for others and in their own self-awareness. The only caveat I'd put to that is it, just like we say, don't just take a test because it really doesn't help you just to know your type if yeah. you don't really work with that. Because this isn't about labeling behaviors. It's about getting to those motivations, right? Well, the same is true. We we actually have someone that we know that's in ministry and her pastoral team brought the Enneagram as a tool for their staff. And it's a large enough church that they have, you know, maybe 20 people on staff um, working together every day throughout the week. And it ended up being because they just kind of did a training and then everyone like had their type that the senior staff pastors finally said, we're not, you're not allowed to use this anymore because they were kind of using it as a weapon. Like, oh, you're being such an eight or wow, that's such a three thing to do, you know? So that's not good either. That's not right. the point of this. So uh, they didn't have, again, it, it comes down to a little more nuance. If it's not providing clarity for yourself and empathy for others, then you're not using it correctly. That's not to say that Megan and I don't sometimes say to each other, oh my gosh, tell me you're a four without telling me you're a four. Like sometimes that's funny, but we're also in a really trusted relationship where we're not using that to beat one another up. So I'm not saying you can't ever use it in day-to-day -day conversation like that, but when it becomes a weapon against each other or a disconnect from one person to another, or like a blame thing, that's not good either. So I would say, yes, it's a great tool, but you need to understand why you would be using it and how to best effectively use it. Yeah, I can see that how it would be your comment about clarity and empathy is what it should be. 
helping to produce. Now, I know you, your ministry, you do workshops. Are there other aspects to your ministry besides the workshops and the podcast? Yeah, our, our favorite thing to do besides the podcast are retreats. And we love going to people. We want to go and enter people's worlds. We want to go, we have one plan this July in Florida because a woman not in Florida said, Hey, my church wants to do something. So we want to spend a weekend with 10 to 14. I mean, we don't have a set number women and just spend a weekend together where we can just in community talk about this. It's not 48 hours of teaching. It's 48 hours of community where we can teach and talk about these concepts and really get some personal ministry time. So the retreats are our favorite thing to do. Uh, we do like staff trainings that are specifically Enneagram focused for uh, nonprofits, for corporations, for churches. We've done women's trainings at like mobs groups, kinds of stuff. Um, and then we do some personal Enneagram coaching as well for people who just want to dig into their own type a little bit more. And if we have any listeners in Hawaii, I mean, we will, we will come there. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> just pay our way there. You don't have to give us anything else. <laughs> right. So any words of advice for who are pursuing a call in ministry, whether it's about the Enneagram or maybe something else about personal awareness, uh, just advice you have for them? We love this. We live it every day. We breathe it. One of the things that I have found that it's been helpful with too is uh, in parenting. Now, a lot of people will say, don't type your children. They need to come to an understanding of this themselves. Uh, they may feel boxed in if you try to you know, decide for them based on their behaviors. But as my kids are getting older and turning into these young adults, you know, they're, they are coming to understanding that. But like I was saying for leadership, even just knowing that I can't parent them all the same way, which we already knew, like we have different personalities, right? But I can speak more to the heart of where their soul needs shepherding instead of just disciplining and, you know, doing that or just showing love the way I want to be loved. And I think that it's just so valuable. So whether you're in leadership or you're a parent or you're in a friendship where you want to go deeper, you know, these, there's so many beautiful things about being willing being willing to do it wrong because you're not so afraid of exposure or, okay, I know I'm an Enneagram one saying that, but we all kind of have some version of that message and being willing to just really honestly love other people the way that you've experienced the love of God and to ask him to continue, you know, to do that work in a deeper way. So we would say, don't type your children, but it can be very helpful with dealing with children or with, with parenting children, whether you're a teacher youth leader, children's church pastor, whatever, because you recognize that there is something in them that you are, you, you know, there's times in, even as a parent or like, I know there's sometimes a youth leader, I thought they're going to be sitting in a counseling room talking about this. That went very badly. And it looks, you know, I did not handle that well, but kind of having that lens of like, I can be reinforcing a wrong belief, or I can be helping them set free from a wrong belief, right? Like I have, I have an opportunity here. Which one am I going to choose? Because sometimes we're just really bothered by them and want them to go away. And we might be reinforcing the wrong belief. Um, so I just think it, it's just the, I don't know, the emotional granularity that we can drill into the um, nuance of how we're all so differently wired and see things so differently. It, I, it's really transformative. Go all in. I would add the fact that we don't, as geeked out as we are about the Enneagram, and even though we talk about it literally on a daily basis, I would say we also don't believe the sun rises and sets on the Enneagram. It's a very valuable and transformative tool. And I think it's one of the quickest, I don't want to say shortcut, but it's one of the quickest ways to get some of that really deep clarity once you understand it, but it's not the only tool we use at Dauntless Grace. We talk a lot about emotions, which pairs with the Enneagram. We talk a lot about 
our bodies and how we understand those and that pairs with the Enneagram. We've just recently stumbled across another counseling tool that overlays so well with the Enneagram that we are, can't stop talking about it on our podcast. So we love the Enneagram, but we don't believe it's the only tool in the toolbox either. I've been listening to your podcast on IFS. Is that what it is? Internal Family Systems. It's internal. And you just said Dr. Allison Cook. So I want to know. How you- uh, crazy. We just, we found a connection uh, and it opened the door to this whole circle of IFS therapists and Enneagram coaches that they all know each other. And so once we said, hey, we had so-and-so on our podcast, everybody else was like, oh, sign me up too then. So it was just the domino effect and it was amazing. And Allison was wonderful. And I would love to talk with her again. Oh, and the way that these, not all of them have done this, but Dr. Cook definitely has, has brought Jesus into the model of IFS counseling. It is the way that we can speak to those childhood messages. It really is. It it gets very specific. So now as a one, right, I experience, I have this message. A lot of other ones would have the same like generic message. But when we, when we think about what we've lived through and experienced, that's where we feel it in our bodies. And so IFS is a great model to really start addressing those wounding messages and figuring out what these layers, like we call the fig leaves, what are these managers that are at work in our lives uh, that are trying so desperately to manage our world to avoid pain? So again, it, it is interesting because it does kind of all go back to my roots with Dr. Crabb because he would say that is what we're trying to avoid is the pain of exposure, right? Or the pain of disconnection. It's just been fascinating to look at how all these models overlay. We could spend a whole nother hour talking about IFS, so we won't yeah. right now on you. Uh, but the yeah, the Enneagram has kind of been our core tool that we've laid everything else on top of to go, how can Jesus work through all of these systems in, in bringing the healing that we all so desperately are craving? Yeah, obviously I'm going to link to your podcast so they can go over there and they can listen to IFS over there on your podcast. And if there's any like starter books you want to recommend for people to get involved in the Enneagram, uh, I'd love to share them in the show notes, but I don't know if you want to do a shout out or something. Yeah. Suzanne Stabile, she has a good book called The Road Back to You. Yeah. She co-wrote that with Ian Morgan Cron. And then she has another one called The Path Between Us. I think those are both really good starting books. Um, I also think Becoming Us by Beth and Jeff McCord is a good Enneagram starter. And then I just want to plug my own Instagram account. It's at Enneagram Megan, because I focus a lot on a lot of basic Enneagram series, but I spend a lot of time really digging into the nuance in my captions. So if people don't have time to read a book, that might be a good place to go, like find that childhood wound series and really read about how, what does that look like for each type and what is the healing message? Things like that. I'll definitely tag you in my Instagram post. Well, thank you so much for me, for joining me and please excuse my puppy who is whining in the background. <laughs> thank Last- you for having us. Yeah, this is great.